Welcome to Everyday Nonviolence. This podcast is produced by Friends for a Nonviolent World, or FNVW. FNVW works to promote and create peace and justice in our community by using the principles and practices of nonviolence to transform conflict and to address the root causes of violence. The Everyday Nonviolence podcast highlights people whose stories deepen our understanding of violence and whose lives demonstrate the many ways nonviolence can promote healing and social change. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Everyday Nonviolence. My name is Iman Shukri. I'm a student with the University of Minnesota, finishing up my final semester of my bachelor's degree. Super, super excited to be here. With me here today is Fartun Welly, the CEO of Istrun. So Istrun is a woman-led, community-driven organization motivated by the belief that Somali women and girls deserve to be healthy and have a strong voice. Isrun is a linguistic and cultural bridge connecting women with wellness information, trusted healthcare providers, financial literacy, civic engagement, and leadership. For healthcare providers and policymakers, they are a partner to improve outcomes and decrease disparity through culturally competent training and research. Isrun is also dedicated to building Somali women and girls' social connectedness and self-sufficiency so that they can lead healthier, more productive lives in Minnesota and globally. So welcome, Fertun. How are you today? I am well. I'm so glad to meet you, Iman. I'm so glad to be meeting you today, too. I'll just go ahead and ask you quickly, what brought you into this line of work? Well, the line of work in a short story is I I grew up in a female household. Uh, my dad died when I was seven. And it defaulted to mom with six children with one disability. My older brother had a job. And I watched her struggle, um, a struggle in, some, in terms of financial. And that is where I saw the window of why, why mom is in, in this financial situation. And but also why that was happening, I also saw an incredible asset. I saw grace. I saw a sense of dignity. I saw culture. I also saw a community that may not, that didn't have financial, but had each other, which is what we're missing right now. She helped us. We're four daughters and two brothers, but she always told us, it doesn't matter how, you know, you end up marrying a rich guy, but she used to tell us, please earn your one shilling, which means right now it's not even a penny in Somali. She was putting the message, you need to be financially independent. And so that she planned the seat and I just kept working on building myself, you know, getting my mom's message, watching other women, but they were so... There was so much greatness and so much assets from what I've learned from my mother and the other women around me. So it's really building on the assets and the amazing grace that these women have, like my mother. I'm building on it, what was missing, which was getting education access, 
healthcare uh, access and staying, keeping their traditional the best way that we can. So you seem to sort of touch on the unique challenges that Somali immigrant women tend to face. Can you speak a little bit more about those challenges and in what ways does the work that you do combat these challenges? I think the most important thing is, uh, let me just say what Isron means. Then you will understand what the, what the deal So Isron is an old uh, Somali name. It means woman who take care of herself. So it, it has a lot of adjectives, smart women, educated women, but you can be educated and still not really smart. So it really women who does take care of herself. And that word drives, I think it would be all women. Um, it's not only Somali women, but all women. The ultimate goal is for her to take care of herself. But we know women also would not be, will be the last person they pick to do anything as long as her family is in, is in either financial crisis or instability of war or uh, things that worry a mom. So the ultimate decision goal for Israel is to make Somali women to take care of herself. So it's a huge, huge, uh, upfront really looks very small goal, but it is we're looking and working through the eyes of Somali women and saying, what worries you, worries Israel? What makes you happy makes us. And so we're saying, uh, so we're looking at that, her kids, her family, social, and that, and the challenges that Somali women face, and I think which many of the Pipeq women face, but as a Muslim Black woman who are very traditional, we face a lot of the typical racism or, you know, we're oppressed um, or, you know, the we are very illiterate. Therefore, we need to be saved. And the patriarch or is it matriarch, whatever, that word. <laughs> yeah, it's like we need, it's almost like we're treated like we're kind of a dumb. Um, and so, but, but, but the, on the other hand, we're like, wait a minute, don't, don't, don't just assume my scarf, which you like, you're wearing so beautifully and I'm wearing so beautifully. It's part of my identity. It's, you don't know the woman behind the scarf. And so we're sick and tired of explaining that our religion, um, as any other religion, it, there's something about you know, what women's rights are and all that. And all the way in centuries in our religion, women's rights, women's um, financial situation, all this has been history. But right now we feel like we're responsible for the religion, which is fine. So what that does is we oppose ourselves self-isolation as the first generation of immigrants. We say, I am not going to be a space where I have to explain myself, where I have to defend myself all the time for you to let me in. So what did we create? We create our own social, social network. We create our own small businesses where we do our henas, we sell our clothes, you know how it goes. And so then the larger society thinks, oh, you Somalis are very isolated. You don't come and build the bridge. So again, we're getting another accusation, right? So. Those are the, then what that happens to like social isolation is a fact. It, it creates a lot of, you know, depression and anxiety. We all suffer. I think non-Somalis do. And so what Israel does that is it says, hello, beautiful. 
come in. It's an identity. Right away, as soon as they hear the Isron, they giggle because back home, Isron woman meant woman with high heel shoes, lipstick, you know, non-traditional, you know, women. So they giggle and say, how did you figure that name out? I'm like, that's a destination. I don't care if you wear high heel shoes or lipstick, but we're all getting there. And so how it how Isron does is we address the fundamental human need, which is a connection, which is acceptance, which is non-judgmental. When that happens, then they will say, oh, I didn't even think this space exists. So it's identity, connection, non-judgmental. And then the last thing for what Isron does, besides the social service, which is really not that big of a deal, is really person feeling connected, which then what does that do? It reduces how, you know, all the science, it makes someone, oh, I feel loved, I feel non-judged. And so that is really the core um, thing that Isron does, beside everything else we're doing, is addressing saying Somali women, you're Black, you're beautiful, you're Muslim, you're so faithful, you're so giving, you're so generous. And also you're Somali. <laughs> you don't suffer inferiority complex. Hey, listen, if you're illiterate, you didn't have opportunity to go to school. That's why now in America, we push classes going to education. Whatever is missing, something that you can grab right now. And your generation, Iman, and the other generation that we brought here and have them here are, are becoming our product of our hardship. But we're so proud of you guys. Thank you for that. I think that that's very beautiful that you guys are working hard to create a space where Somali women feel strong in in their identity and strong in in who they are. I guess my next question would be, how does meeting the basic needs of Somali women and teaching social skills sort of generate social change for their communities and for themselves? We came here as a refugee, as immigrants, and we came from crisis. We, you know the story. Um, meeting the first basic needs, you know, connecting to the system, make sure they have food, there is a house, you know, there is house. And then they get into the, what I call the poverty conveyor belt. It's relying on the system. They're also in a survival mode. I think most of the Minnesotans and Americans don't know the consequence of Somali families being now, last time I checked, was 57% female household led. This was not something that was accidental. African-American, yes, the, the men and the boys have went to prison. Native women's um, men and um, boys go to the annihilation of the system. But Somali families, after 9-11, there was a foreign policy that would not bring dad with mom when they migrated. So we had a huge refugee, uh, female household led that moved into America and Minnesota. So practically, the, and the unintended consequence of foreign policy created this huge uh, female household led in our community. So then coming from the war, maybe having a little, not being able to do, you know, went to school and surviving the war, these women have created, despite of all the refugees challenges, um, crisis, PTSD, mental health, these women have developed incredible resilience. I always laugh when I see something that says, let's teach resilience to a black and brown woman and immigrant. I say, are you kidding me? Resilience is in our gene. Talk to yourselves. 
don't bother, don't bother. We have all the resilience we want. Just get out of our way. Uh, that's how, how I usually say. And so then what happens, then these women and, and, and their families, our system was never designed them to be independent financially. You know, we have these huge NGOs, all the Jews, like, I'll give you the basic service today, and I'll give you another basic service tomorrow. But our system is not designed. How do we help you stand into your own two feet? So what Israel does is say, okay, you're already on this poverty conveyor belt where you're just moving around nonstop, nonstop, nonstop. One example is the food shelf hunger issue. One, one out of five black and brown kids is live on hunger, yet we have billions of dollars of funding that we can eliminate hunger from, from Minnesotans, especially black and brown people, if we want to, but we don't want to. The money goes somewhere else. So what Israel does is we say, come here. Where are you on the conveyor belt, right? Is your, are you in housing crisis? When was the last time you did a mammogram? When was the last time you did any cervical cancer screening? And 90% is not, I, I haven't done anything, right? And no wonder why we have mental illness crisis. No wonder why we have cervical and breast cancer. No wonder we have obesity epidemic and diabetes in our community. She's busy trying to be on a different areas on this poverty conveyor belt. So what we do, Israel does is, number one, develop the relationship and the trust and deliver non-transactional service which means I'm interested in you. Where are you going? What are you doing? Remember the system does transactional. Come here today, I'll serve you one thing. It's run the opposite. Come here, cup of tea, tell me about you, what you already know, where are you at? And then we match our foot, uh, our services with where she's going. But then what we are is a partner, not a transactional, so therefore, whether we have grants or not, we're right there with, with, with the Somali women and their families. Therefore, we never, ever, ever do outreach. We are serving about 67 zip codes of Minnesotans, 67. And how we know that is we implemented Salesforce and we started collecting zip codes where our families are coming from. So it is, relational services, and our goal is getting our families conveyor belt, the poverty conveyor belt. I love that. I love that. That is definitely extremely important work. And you definitely touched on a very important subject matter, which would be navigating healthcare as an immigrant. So would you briefly discuss why navigating healthcare is so important for the well-being of Somali women? So the healthcare, that's where I came from. I worked, I worked as a phlebotomist when I came to Minnesota. Um, I was at a Methodist hospital. Actually, they gave me my first job after I called 411 and said, I'm a phlebotomist. I'm a new immigrant. I need a job. And someone connects me to that. And I've been there 12 years. Um, the, 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 again, it comes down to when Native women and African American women have the, the highest maternal and infant mortality, maternal and infant mortality rate, even like the child, um, infant mortality in America and Minnesota, I think is number one or number three. We have, last time I checked, it was 14%. 
Somali women in East Africa, the 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 infant mortality and the maternal mortality rate is the maybe number one or number two in the whole continent. So one in ten women die in labor. One in five children don't even reach one year old. But so they came here knowing that Native and African-American women have been in, in a healthcare disparity, not because they don't really speak English, just because how the system was structured. They were never designed to access the services. Remember, they were treated inhumanely. So the Somali woman comes in with her scar, with female general cutting, with lack of language barrier. Imagine where would she fall into the category? She would fall at the bottom of the barrel, right? Again, the way the services are done here, where Native women and African-American women suffer is very transactional way. It's like, I'm not interested in you, give me a few minutes, the doctor does this, prescribes, and boom. And so Somali women struggle that, we, they suffer. Also, we have a culture of curative. We're never preventative, remember where we came from. Mom will not go see a doctor until she's not able to get off the bed or the baby's coming out. In America, there are not enough resources that promote preventative care access. We talk about it, but then nothing happens in culturally specific. If you Google culturally specific and why it is so important in reducing health disparity, it, the data goes up. But if you match the funding, it is practically zero, right? So what Isuron does is a one at a time health literacy training. Uh, we connect with specific providers, OB doctors, and say, even sometimes I explain how to use the um, how to use the spoken with women with female genital care, and that's what I do. So then when one doctor does good preventive care access screen with Somali women with female genital cutting, that clinic doesn't need to do outreach because one Somali woman who gets good care she will tell another 200, 300, you know how it goes, but that is the struggle. So we do education for the providers who are interested in learning about relational organizing, relational services, which most of the system does not invest. But we also empower Somali women to fire their providers uh, because we came from a culture where doctors are number two to grandma and grandpa, well-respected, so we tell them, you can fire them. Just fire them and find another doctor. So healthy literacy, empowering them, telling them to get lost. You know, you're a doctor, just, just tell them, I don't want you to find another doctor. And really making it a priority that mom, if you don't screen cervical cancer, breast cancer, early premenopause screening, bone density, um, your vitamin D, you won't be able to lead the family, which she is so matriarch and so needed. I guess you bring up a really important factor here with that last answer, where systemic discrimination comes into play. Um, in what ways do you guys tackle issues of systemic discrimination? Well, I don't do Minnesota nice. I just confront it. I, I can attest. It's really, really hard to because Minnesota niceness. I don't know how to be Minnesota niceness. I tell them, sorry, uh, this is what it is. So one of my coaches, I ask, she's like, don't call a racist a racist. And I say, why not? How else would I be? Well, they're just gonna make it harder. 
I say it would be harder anyway. Let me just voice it if that's going to make me feel better, you know, and make the racist uncomfortable. So how we are addressing is our Israel is unapologetically, uniquely be vocal about it. But we're not just complaining because we know the system was never designed. Remember, our role model, the data, everything we're using as a Somali institution here is African-American data and a Native woman data. If those sisters who have been here hundreds of hundreds of years are not doing well in so many generations, I'm not gonna wait anybody to help me serve me. So what Israel is doing and have been doing is created our own coral, right? You can't ask the system to change for us. So the, the way that I've been doing with our team is creating our own culturally specific coral, which is here's how you serve Somali woman from her lifespan, right? And then that's coming. So we've trained 11, 10 doulas right now. The first in Minnesota that has a 10 certified doulas of color. We have one African-American and nine are Somali. I included myself, so that is that. We're opening our own birth center that is specifically serving women with female genital cutting. That's two. We're also developing our own culturally specific home visiting. So child protection and Somali women and black women is a key problem. Minnesota takes black and brown women children so much. And Somali families right now are at the chopping block because we have a lot of kids and female household and single mom. And so how it is systematic is we we were saying, see you later. We're gonna we're gonna figure out how to navigate our families until we design our own social enterprise, but very innovative way of serving our families. And thank God that's coming up soon. Can you talk about the importance of cultural literacy? Yes, I think that's uh, that itself could be a podcast of itself. Um, I can tell you where Somali women and Muslim women are turned off by the cultural illiteracy of our of our our fellow uh, Minnesotans and Americans. So one thing we're accused of being oppressed, we're accused of being not able to have our own voice, right? But on the other hand, when it comes down to engagement and talk to, guess who they got engagement? They talk to our men, which is fine. Uh, we're not anti-men, anti-we're not. So they're still trying to get, um, they're still they're treating us that we're not able to make decisions on our own, you know? So we're here, professionals, working moms, you know, doctors, even, if mom is a full-time home, we know that she does more work than those of us who are going to work, right? The the, the cultural illiteracy of our, um, that could also be a racism um, in, in, in saying, okay, when we need Somali community, we're just gonna talk to the guys, right? And ignore 50% of the community, right? That is, that is also cultural literacy. Don't assume that our man will make a decision. You wouldn't go to a, uh, a white community and they're just engaged men only. But here you are making a shortcut. On one side you're saying we're oppressed, we can't speak for ourselves, but the other side you make shortcut and just get to the people that you think will make decisions for us, right? 
The other cultural illiteracy, I think Somalis are the most open, uh, conservative that lately that came in that open. Uh, we have so many different ways that we engage. Like I said, we don't really suffer inferiority complex to white white people. So we tend to be running in everywhere and everything, you know? We're very talkers. We, we're willing to share who we are. And so our Minnesotans and our Americans, they really aren't, most of them aren't listening. Most of them aren't interested in having a deep cultural illiteracy about our, our community. And so then what happens is they just take what they want to take and leave the most of it. So that's why, the again, I said self-imposed isolation. It's not like we don't want to be engaged. Like I said, on the other hand, we're everywhere, opening shops, Uber drivers, um, we're everywhere you call there's some old women moving, right? But the relationship, again, the bridges have not been built very well. So my what I can tell people is really, just say, what does it mean to build meaningful relationship with your community? We're going to be, where are your neighbors? Edina is not yours anymore. <laughs> Awezar is not yours anymore. We're right there with you. Somalis are not in Minneapolis anymore. So please understand, come to our messages, connect with our, with our second and third generation. They'll teach you a lot about that. And, but it is is do you want to be culturally literate? That's actually the question I ask people. And the most of the time is, oh, it's so difficult. I don't want to offend anybody. I'm like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. see ya. <laughs> I think it's definitely important to talk about the ways in which women should be allowed to advocate for themselves and speak for themselves, especially within the context of cultural literacy. So could you please please briefly describe the importance of advocacy to Istrun. Yes, well, thank you for asking. That's a dear, dear, dear um, advocacy has been, uh, I couldn't speak that much English when I, when I realized you really can't address, uh, civic engagement is critical. Uh, like I said, my, I think my, my dad was in the army. So very, I grew up next to military compound. So, my behavior, even right now, being American citizen, I very much believe in, in land and a country and dignity, humility, honesty, and serving others is my, is my upbringing and it's a tradition I'm continuing. Therefore, being civically engaged, um, was something I picked on first, first couple of months I was in Minnesota. I visited, um, where he was rest in peace, Senator Paul Wallstone's office. And I was trying to, you know, file some documents for my family. And then this guy comes in, he offers me tea, had me sat down. And I was like, why are you here? I said, oh, I just mumbled a little English. Um, but I could understand what he was saying. And he's like, sit down, you know, one of the staff is going to come to you. And one of the staff came and I thought it was the staff that had me, that welcomed me. I was like, hmm, this sounds really a nice place. And then one of the staff came over and said, Hartun, come here. I need to fill out your application. I said, who was the man who, uh, what about the other one? I thought there's someone already that will see me. And he was like, oh, no, 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 that was Senator Paul Wallstone. I was like, what? What? Is, is a politician going to be that nice? And I said, Whatever Kalan member he is, which means whatever party he is, 
I'm going to be his party. So I practically signed up to be a Democrat. <laughs> Democrat because of may he rest in peace. And uh, Paul Wilson, and that gave me a platform to do. So Israel from day one has been like, what policy, how does policy influence in, in, in our lives? Again, looking at black and brown people in America, in Minnesota. And so it's, we're talking to our families, Somali women, and we're talking about who do you vote for? Do you know your representative? Civic engagement is ingrained what Israel does. And, and, and I got beat up a lot uh, as I got older. <clears throat> I don't belong to a specific party right now, but it's so important, it's so critical that our families are civically engaged. And the last thing I would say is be on the poverty conveyor belt for sure eliminates a poor person or someone who's struggling financially to pay attention who in the God's word represents me. Who cares? I'm trying to feed my family. I'm trying to get right now my kids who are on drugs. The landlord eviction that right now epidemic that's happening in our state. That individual is busy. And so sometimes reminding them the worst time just Five minutes of saying, remember who you vote for. And then they sometimes look at me, are you okay, Fartun? But I've been saying this to all of years. So our goal is to remind our families the power of being civically engaged and the power of just keeping it in mind that you are not in poverty because of, 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 of lack of resources and lack of money. But most people, cannot fathom that there's no black and brown person that would be going to Minnesota food shop and picking up a food. You know, most people cannot fathom thinking about socially, financially well-being of PIPAC community. That dream is what we have to instill in our families. And the only way that can happen is removing them the conveyor belt one at a time, having them make sure that they all vote, but not only vote and send people to seats, but also make sure that they're connected. But removing this crisis, um, resource scarcity mentality, there isn't enough for you message that they get from the school system, from the food system, from the welfare system. And now from everywhere else, we just don't wanna be the victim anymore. Tomorrow, was going to be the first day that over 500 Somali families will be coming to the Rotenda in Minnesota. It's a new day for us. It's going to be an amazing day where your generation, Ivan, the second, third, fourth generation is going to be showing up. And I am, I, I don't know how I'm going to hold my tears. I'll make sure I go to some corner just to wipe out my tears. But it's going to be amazing, amazing, amazing tomorrow. Follow us up, check us out. And I'm grateful for having me talk this early morning. Yes, for sure. For sure. That was amazing. That was definitely amazing. Thank you so much for tune for speaking with us here at the Everyday Nonviolence Podcast. I encourage our listeners to look up Istun if you are interested in the work that they do. Their website is www.istun.org. That's I-S-U-R-O-O-N.org. Thank you. 
you for listening to Everyday Nonviolence. To learn more about Friends for a Nonviolent World, visit our website at fnvw.org or call 651-917-0383. We hope you will subscribe so that you don't miss future episodes and insightful conversations. Please note that the views expressed in this podcast are those of the host and guest and are not intended to reflect the official positions of FNVW, its staff, or board of directors.